First of all, I just want to let everyone know Epstein didn't kill himself. And number two, whenever you're looking for a place to eat in Jonesboro that's got some quality Italian food, you need to get a hold of Lazari Italian Oven. At Lazari's today, you can get seafood, you can get steaks, you can get pastas, you can get soups, you can get appetizers, and you get all the free bread that you can fit inside that little mouth of yours. And you know you're <laughs> going to love it. It's going to taste good. Everything they have is very very excellent actually we're on our way there right now yeah if you hear we're, us driving we're actually we're, in a car right now we're actually in a car right now because we are hungry and so lazari you can call them today at 870-931-4700 I'm, I'm swerving off the road i'm so hungry but you know what brian we got done playing monopoly just now that's why we're in the car we left because we're hungry you know we kept trading properties we were never satisfied with what we had. We always try to say, hey, I want what you got. You got, I got what you want. Why don't we make a swap? You know what? With Dustin Thomas and Live Oak Realty, you ain't going to be swapping because you're going to love what you got. Because Dustin works for you on your behalf. Whatever you need, he takes care of it. You can contact him at listwithliveoak.com. Tell Dustin the conversation sent you. When we were in that house playing Monopoly, one thing I noticed is the air conditioning worked just like a Nat Anderson heat and air job. I mean, if, if your house needs some work done on it to make sure that it is cool inside whenever it's hot outside or it's hot inside when it's cold outside, you need to get a hold of Nat Anderson today at Anderson Heat and Air. The phone number for Anderson Heat and Air is 870-664-1967. Let them know the Crucial Conversation sent you. Brian, we have been in the car a lot together this weekend. Too much. But you know what? We had a great time this weekend with Dr. April Jones and her company, the Drifted Drum Company. She had an awesome event in Alamo, Tennessee we called uh, the No Pity Party that we were a part of. Brian, I am so thankful and blessed that we're allowed to be a part of such an awesome movement that they've got going on. And we're so thankful to have Dr. April Jones and the Drifted Drum Company as a sponsor of the podcast. Guys, please go out and support those who support us. You can find all of our awesome stuff at thedrifteddrumcompany.com. Type in promo code CRUCIAL and get 10% off whatever you want there. Her book, No Mess, No Message, man, I'm telling you, it's something. Brian, you just got a copy of that, didn't you? Yeah, I got a physical copy, signed and everything, real nice. And go to thedrifteddrumcompany.com, type in code CRUCIAL and get 10% off your entire order. You know what would make this drive better, Tony? Uh, a motorcycle? Bingo! Tell me where I can get one. Jonesboro Cycle and ATV, Jonesboro, Arkansas. They have everything you need from motorcycles, dirt bikes, go-karts, four-wheelers, scooters, side-by-sides, uh, ATVs. It don't matter. You need it. That, that, Brian, they even have jet skis. Look, I'm already sold. Just tell me how I get a hold of them. You can go to Jonesboro Cycle. Dot com, put in promo code CRUCIAL. Get 10% off anything on the website, or you can go visit them. Give them a call, 870-935-2887, and uh, tell them that the conversation sent you. You guys are really going to enjoy this episode we got going on with Dr. David Norris. I'm telling you, this guy really opened up his heart this during this episode. Uh, he touches on some stuff that, uh, I don't know, Brian, we, we both were touched whenever he got to speaking. Yes, he's a very educated man, has a great theological background. This podcast, we don't focus so much on it, even though we do touch on some of his books. But like Tony said, we focus on not who the doctor is, but who the man is. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Crucial Conversation. Brian, here we are at Lazari's. All right, let's go get some. That never really healed um, all, all the years. I went to I went to my grandfather when he was on his deathbed and apologized for hurt, and I went to my father and all that sort of things. So I would like to tell a good story and say, you know what, that, that all got worked over. And, but uh, it w was hard for my dad, and, and he was choosing between his father and his son. You know, how, how did he do that? So that was a very difficult thing. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. It is our honor and privilege today to be speaking with an individual that has made a career of studying the apostolic truth. There's, yes. there's a sermon I heard recently, Tony, uh, talking about the, the practical implications of the oneness of God. And one of the things that the, the preacher was making a point of is how the Bible tells us we are to worship God with our body, soul, mind, and strength. And, and one thing we hear a lot about is, is preaching that impacts our souls and our spirits. But what he was wanting to make the point of is that there is an important element of worship when it comes to the mind. And, and I'm thankful today to be able to sit down with Dr. Norris to, to talk about not just the mind, though he is certainly a man of study, and we'll get into that, but an individual that certainly has a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. I mean, in just the short amount of time that we've interacted with him, he's an individual that I've already seen exhibits a, a servant's heart. He's been asking to help us set Absolutely. up, and, and students that are here move books around. And so, Dr. Norris, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, we look forward to being with you. Uh, we're going to hit the ground running. Are you ready, Dr. Norris? I'm ready to roll. So... I, our friend Tony McCall, whenever he found out that we were going to be with you, he said, you've got to get him to tell the story from the get-go. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from and you know, how you got involved in becoming Dr. David Norris. I was uh, born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, where the good Swedes and the Norwegians live, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> My mom was uh, Swedish-Norwegian. My dad... Uh, other things. Um, my dad was raised in the church. In fact, my grandfather was a Pentecostal pioneer. A lot of people would know the name S.G. Norris. He started the Apostolic Bible Institute. He was born at the turn of the 20th century, and he uh, saw a lot of those beginning things back when you had to be hard and tough, and you had to, uh, nobody was believing what you're believing, and you had to be strong. So those are my roots. But my dad, uh, growing up in his teenagers, he left the church and married out of the church. Uh, ironically, he always believed in the church. And so he would tell us, you know, whatever the church says, do it. But he, th it was not that way at home. So, but for all practical purposes, I was raised in the church. I, Sunday school was where I, formative years about Jesus and Camp Cowley, where we went to church camp in the summer. So, so with your family being integral to apostolic studies, ABI, we are, you know, I, I'm just about everybody out there has heard of ABI, yeah. um, and your grandfather, what do you, um, how do you see apostolic academia 
academia and how it has changed over time? Well, um, if you had asked that question 25 years ago, people might have said, what academic uh, uh, apostolic movement? But um, in the last two decades, it's been incredible to see the growth in those who have gotten advanced degrees and who are writing, who are in conversation with the larger religious world. Uh, and it's pretty incredible what the Lord is doing. I'm glad to be a part of that here at uh, UGST. Uh, I think of the, oh, I'm bad on statistics, but maybe there are 20, don't hold me on this, but maybe 26 writers that were in the apostolic uh, study Bible and have advanced degrees. And I think about 23 or so are associated in some way with the school here. So it's, it's pretty neat to be a part of what God's doing uh, here at Urshan Graduate School and also at Urshan College. What a time. And, and, and it's I, I have no formal education training at all, and uh, but if it wasn't for the work of people like you and, and Brother Bernard and, and so many others that writings have been able to get in the hands of people that haven't had the opportunity to go to a formal school, uh, I have to say thank you so much yes. to everyone who plays a part in that. Yes. So, Dr. Norris, you uh, you've you've been uh, rooted in the apostolic movement and. Um, you, your father and your grandfather, tell us a little bit about your growing up experiences and mm. um, sometimes where you may have wondered if this was the path you wanted to take sure, or, sure. you know, if you ever questioned, because if, if you're not of our faith and you're listening in, Dr. David Norris is a professor here. Uh, you just heard him say UGST. Um, we're at Urshan Graduate School of Theology right now in St. Louis, Missouri, where he plays a vital role, Brian, in what he does here. Uh, you know, we were asking some of the students while we were waiting on you to get here, uh, who's your favorite teacher here? And it's Dr. Norris. And, you know, that's, that's awesome to hear people from such different um, uh, generations. I'll just put it as nicely mm -hmm. as I can. Different generations that you still understand how to impact people. Mm -hmm even though you're not a part of their generation, who is some of those people or what are some of those things growing up that made you realize this is something that I want to do? My grandmother was my Sunday school teacher as a 10 and 11 year old. And there was something about my grandmother that was pretty amazing. She could tell a story and bring the presence of the Lord in. She, I, you can't quantify that. It was like she, all of a sudden, and you don't know, as a 10 year old kid, you don't know what's happening, but it's like, Wow, and it made uh, living for the Lord real. My, my grandpa was a man of one book, the Bible. My grandmother, she also taught at ABI, and she said, don't be lazy, read other books. And this is like <laughs> one class following the other. So uh, those were both great influences in my life. My grandfather was from another time. Uh, I say it, you do it. And uh, that was... Uh, I was happy to leave ABI. I was glad to be there, but uh, back in the day, we, um, you could actually evangelize. Um, people would come to church uh, and hear somebody who didn't know how to preach. So my wife and I, that's how you started in ministry. We would go to churches and we, we would preach and try to sing and, and people would come back. And it was, we did that for a couple of years. Then we started a church in West Bend, Wisconsin it was when I was in West Bend, Wisconsin, the Lord had blessed, and there were a number of families that had come in, and the church was doing well, that the Lord called me 
literally called me, and, and I thought he called me because I was going to do so good, but he actually called me because I was going to have so much trouble. And, and so sometimes that's why the Lord speaks so loudly, to teach in Bible college. And so that's really my start. I didn't, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do this. This was, it was kind of a surprise to me. I went back to ABI, and uh, it was a time my grandfather was quite old, um, still in charge, but kind of senile, and, the, uh, and, and he was a great man. My grandfather was a great man. He, uh, anything I am or ever will be, I owe it to him. But it was a hard time uh, at ABI, and I kind of wound up in the crosshairs of some of that and wound up having to leave and really became distanced from my family. That was a pretty hard time in my life. But since that time, though, I have been trying to faithfully fulfill that call, going continual schooling until I finished uh, the work that I needed to do for a doctorate, and uh, have been teaching now for about 35 years. 35 years. You, you've dedicated your life to this, to absolutely, the calling. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there's two questions I want to ask you that derive off of what you just said. Uh, Brian and I had breakfast with a uh, gentleman who picked us up from the airport this morning, and he was telling us stories of, um, you know, he no longer pastors, but he's still very mightily involved in ministry. And I asked him, I said, do you ever think you'll pastor again? And he said, no. And, uh, you know, he's so definite about that, but he said, but maybe that's not what God might have for me, you mm -hmm. know, uh, if that is, that's something. And then we got to talking about the calling of God, and you just spoke about that a little bit ago. Yeah, he talked about a friend that he just heard the voice of God saying, it's, you need to resign the church and wait until their next opportunity comes open. And the guy just did it. Because without, he, without a safety because net, he just he, does it. Yeah, without any mm -hmm. indicators of what's next, he just yeah. followed the call of God. And so I want to ask you, how does God call someone? Because... We were sitting in this breakfast, and I heard him say he listens for it, and he sees it, he visualizes it. And for me, I, I guess I'm more of a doubting Thomas kind of guy. Yeah. I like to see it. Sure. You know, I can hear things, but, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, is that me or you, God? Mm. You know, sometimes I really feel like it's God, but it's more like what I want instead of what I need. And how does a person know that they're called to do something for God? That's a great question. I think that um, sometimes we want a, uh, a multiple-choice answer to an essay yeah, question, and I know you're not asking for that. But um, when you ask, how does God call, I think God calls louder the harder something is. So if he wants you to go to China or Africa or something, he better call pretty loud. Yeah. Right. But if it's like uh, teach your neighbor Bible study, it's more like, uh, well, you know, kind of do that. And some things are in between. Uh, most, most times, I would say 90% of the will of God is just kind of right in front of our, our, our nose. And, and, and usually when we think of calling, we usually think of changing locations or making some major life change. But most of calling is simply doing the thing that the Lord asks you to, to do last. Right. My second question that I was going to ask from that is, do you ever struggle with what God's called you to do? Somebody who's dedicated, you said 35 years, mm. somebody who's dedicated their whole life to this, do you ever still struggle with it even though you know you're doing what God's called you specifically to do? There's uh, times when you have different things come up. Uh, sometimes it's a colleague 
uh, that you're in struggle with. Sometimes it's an administration. Sometimes it's a student. You know, you got that one student who just make almost make faces at you, sit there in derision, and you go like, God, I'm supposed to teach, and I've got this. And so it's so sad that my ego is so fragile that there's a, <laughs> one student can just ruin my whole calling. So, of course, I mean, uh, over the course of years, in different times, struggle with different things. But in the main, I wake up every day feeling so honored that I can get paid for what I love doing. Absolutely. Uh, whenever I was growing up, and I think this is one of the questions Tony was wanting to ask as a, as a follow-up, um, whenever I was growing up, I always saw the ministry, because I always had very good leaders in my life, their lives always seemed perfect. And, and, and I think there are people that can look at people like, that are in your position now and be like, oh, well, their life is just perfect. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't go through what, what we go through. But, but in, in passing, in, in, in your, whenever you were discussing about your time at ABI, you made a comment about how your family kind of had a, a strain on it. Can, can you tell us, I'm not asking you necessarily to go into what caused the strain, but, but what your emotional state was like when you went through that time? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Uh, I was 30 years old, and um, we had a son named Nathaniel was born with a genetic disorder. So that was a, uh, that was a special, uh, we love Nathaniel and he was um, a special boy, but, but it, he, he was total care. So that was, so when we moved to St. Paul, that, that was uh, one thing that was pressing. And, and uh, so Nancy was dealing with that. And then it was clear that I, um, there are things happening there that I didn't um, th- think uh, were, I felt like I needed to leave. And I talked to the district superintendent and he says, no, you need to go to talk to your grandfather and explain everything that's going on and whatever. And I go like, no, you don't know about my grandpa. You have no idea. Uh, at any rate, um, long story short, it didn't end well. And my tenure there didn't end well. I had to decide because in my family loyalty is a big thing as in a lot of families would I go and teach at another Bible college that wasn't my family's and that was a big deal and I did and that was where um, you can imagine how how that would have gone over in my family it didn't go over well I taught at um, Kent Christian College in Dover Delaware for Sister Chow I was there for 10 years uh, I was in the middle of my doctoral program and they closed and so I flew back and forth to IBC and taught there for a number of years, five and a half years, and uh, uh, through the course of all of that, we go back to St. Paul for funerals and different things. Uh, over the years though, um, uh, there have been some healing and um, some ways in which it has gotten uh, better. and. Uh, but everyone has something in their life that's kind of that thing that you can either, you, you, have, to, you have to just say, Lord, I, um, I, I don't understand everything in my life, but I give you my hurts and uh, I give you my uh, things and questions I don't understand, and I, I'm going to, by, by your grace, be, be faithful. So I can relate on some sort of a note that way. 
Whenever I decided to move from Illinois to Arkansas, my dad had recently become pastorate of the church that I grew up in, that my great-grandmother um, was a pioneer in, and that she had to fight for her life to be a part of. And when I say that, uh, she had to fight for her life, that's not a, um, a phrase, or it's not a... Hyperbole. That, yeah, the, thank you. It is, she literally had to fight for her life. She would come home with her kids, and um, my great-grandfather would beat her with an inch of her life and say, don't go ever go back to that apostolic church. Um, don't take our kids. We don't want nothing to be associated with that. Well, my dad pastors that church now. Mm, and and it's a very special place, exactly. And um, Dr. Norris, whenever I told my father that I was leaving, um, my dad, who was my best friend, it was like a wedge was put between us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I saw hurt that I was causing not only just to my father but to my family. And my dad, I was, I'll just be transparent with you. I was the youngest person in that church at the age of 19 years old. It yeah. was it was not growing when my dad took it over. It was hurting. It was starving. And here I am, the pastor's son, newly elected, going to leave. What does that look for my father? Sure. And, um, you know, I, I'll never forget the phrase my dad told me. He said, as your father, I plead with you and I beg you not to go. But as your pastor, I'm asking you to follow the, the calling of God and the will he has for your life. That was a great gift. Yes, absolutely. So I left, and I'll be honest with you, um, for about three, four, maybe even six months, uh, our relationship was not good. Um, it wasn't. I felt like I was developing in ministry, and, um, you know, I was being my own man, being three hours from home, and uh, I felt, you know, I was growing. You know, nobody from my family left. They're all still there. I'm the, I'm the black sheep that left. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I can relate when you say that it caused strain and there has there's a healing process and that um, sometimes it takes a long time for that wound to heal. Uh, can you speak to our listeners right quick about a heal- the healing process when it comes to family members that um, they might have been hurt by a family member, but they're still family and that's what we've got? Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many different stories. And there's so many different paths on those stories. Sometimes they have a happy ending. And sometimes you wait for the blessing that doesn't come. My father, the last Sunday service, and I was in St. Paul. He hadn't served the Lord all these years. But he came to church and he came to the altar. I thought that was a great gift from God. I was very thankful for that. And... and he came. It was great to see him in latter years. Really, genuinely, passionately served the Lord. But he came at a time I was already gone, when there was a split between the the, the college and the church, and terrible things happened. And uh, even though it happened after I left, uh, I was perceived to not be um, loyal to our family and. If you're not for us, you're against us. That was the kind of thing. And so um, that uh, that never really healed um, all, all the years. I went to 
I went to my grandfather when he was on his deathbed and apologized for hurt, and I went to my father and all that sort of things. So I would like to tell a good story and say, you know what, that, that all got worked over. And, but uh, it w was hard for my dad, and, and he was choosing between his father and his son. You know, how, how did he do that? So that was a very difficult thing. Right. Did your, did your father, or excuse me, did your grandfather accept your apology? I believe he did. Um, I was, you know, you want a blessing. You want him to say, you know, this, uh, uh, you're doing great, and uh, thank you for your ministry. Uh, but um, he, uh, he, what he did say was, whatever you do, preach Acts 2.38. Be faithful. And I, I said, okay. That's, that's a pioneer. Yeah. That's an so apostolic pioneer. So you take what you get, you know. Yeah. Take what you get. So if you look back at that time period, do you, do you ever look back at it and you're like, well, if I'd handled it a little different in this way, that there, that strain wouldn't have been there? Or do you think that it was just an inevitable? I think there are things I could have done, obviously. Um, I was trying to listen to certain, I was trying to listen to everyone. I was trying to get good advice. But the person that gave me the advice uh, said, now write this down, write a letter to your grandfather and uh, explain the things that would make you want to stay. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. He said, I'm not telling you to do it. Well, he was an authority figure in my life, and I did it, and that, would, that wound up just being uh, a disaster. I would never have done that uh, <laughs> if, if I could have. And there were a couple other things I wouldn't have done. But, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes things happen. I've read some books, psychology books, you 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 do break from mentors and and sometimes you do make different directions and different changes and that and when I read the book and it looked almost prescribed it was like the same years that happened to me and so on and so forth so um, most people don't wind up doing plan a will of God in their life what they thought they would do as a child it's usually plan B or C and uh, they have to sort that out and usually uh, God can really work through plan B's, C's, and otherwise. Yeah. So when you got back from seeing your grandfather uh, and you got back home, how, how hard was it to continue on with your daily life knowing that um, all that had taken place? You know, you, you tried to close that wound and yet you're still trying to go back to the daily grind. Did that affect you at all? Did you keep going back to that in your mind? Because I, I, I remember um, telling someone, usually it's you, you win the battle, but you lose it in your mind. Mm. Well, um, when I left St. Paul and went to Dover, Delaware, I was depressed for um, months. So I, I wouldn't tell you otherwise. But you, you just sort of keep going. Um, so... There, yeah, I, there, there are hurts, and there, there are things you have to rebound on. So uh, that's a short answer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand it completely. But I want to ask you, do, why, why do apostolics feel the need to not be depressed? Hmm. If my wife were here, you'd get some really good answers. She's thought about this a lot. Because um, she's, uh, throughout our life, and ministry. She's experienced bouts of depression. And there's a whole, uh, almost a theology of like, 
you're if you're depressed, you it's a spiritual matter. You know, if your heart's bad, we don't say don't take medicine for your heart. Or if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, we don't say that it's your problem. But but that's one thing where and we're doing better. I think we're doing better uh, at that. Mm-hmm. We we have more counselors now than we've ever had, and so I'm very thankful for the growth. But that that's old school where yeah. somebody's depressed you come up and pray through and, and otherwise you're wrong you know? you know that's one thing brian we've heard time and time again on the podcast is a lot of times we go for spiritual guidance and it's always pray or fast about it and there's those times where you just can't connect with that and you you know you and you're afraid that if you you speak on uh hurt or speak on shame or guilt or uh, maybe your priorities was wrong. All of a sudden, people start discrediting crediting right. what God has placed in your life, and it devalues you as a human, and that's when you start slipping into that depression. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, Brian, on this podcast, I want people to know, and Dr. Norris, you, you have way more knowledge than we do, uh, But and discredit this if this isn't the case. But I feel like that God's ca- calling on your life doesn't mean that you're not going to fail, that you're not going right. to hurt, right. that you um, are not going to stumble. But right. I'm thankful for God's grace. Yeah. And it seems to me like you have uh, found that through all of your, your family's hurts and struggles, um, you know, just finding that place of grace that you can hold on to and don't disavow what God's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's an element of, of a lot of folks that are out there that they – uh, a lot of until people have really gone through what you've gone through, they really don't have an understanding of it. That there are people that they have opinions, and, and what comes to mind when I say that is, is there was there's a minister whose wife was burned severely at a bonfire. There was some some kids had thrown something into a bonfire. I think it was like a um, brake capler or something. I, I can't remember what it was, but under pressure, it expanded and it exploded. And so she had severe burns. And so for years, she was going through different surgeries uh, because of it. And people would just come by and say, well, well, just pray about it or, or have brother so-and-so pray about it. And, and in the sermon, the minister was saying that they didn't understand how long I had been praying. They mm-hmm. would tell me to go have brother so-and-so pray. And he was like, but you don't understand, my father was a missionary in Brazil, and he was the, most, he was the greatest man of faith that I ever saw. Yeah. He was praying. And he's like, and it's just until you've been there sometimes, right. you really don't know what it's like. Sure. And, and, and so what I would say, I guess I don't really don't know all of what I would say to an individual, but if there's an individual out there where you feel like you are all alone, you may be the only person in your sphere of influence that is battling what you're directly battling, but somewhere out there, there's somebody that's going through it. Absolutely. And there's somebody that has gone through worse. So, Dr. Norris, I want to kind of shift a little bit about and go into about what you do for a career. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about all of the degrees and um, all the things that you've went through uh, training-wise. And uh, tell us a little bit about who you are on that end. Well, when I felt a call to uh, teach Bible college, I didn't have anything beyond Bible college. So I, I needed uh, to go back to school. And so I w- went to a seminary in um, uh, Philadelphia, and I said, I'd like to go. I said, well, we don't, you, you don't have an accredited degree, so you're going to need to go back. So I, went, I got another 
uh, bachelor's degree, and then uh, I got a master's degree. Uh, and then I kept telling the students, um, you know, somebody needs to go and get a doctorate here because <laughs> people won't really respect us as a movement until we have people who are doctorates. I, and, you know, oftentimes you tell these things and really it's God speaking to you in mm -hmm. sort of like a battery. <laughs> That's just exactly like, what, you know, uh, yeah. what McCall told us. He said, you better be careful what you say God ought to do. <laughs> well, 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 he, well he, here's how it works for me. Hey, Melissa, somebody needs to clean those dishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just found God's will. <laughs> yeah. So so you felt like somebody ought to get that doctorate degree in. Yes, so yes. So what was your master's degree in? It was in uh, it was a master's of theological studies. Okay, so you what, did, what was your master's thesis on? My master's thesis was on um, the biblical origins and history of modalistic monarchians. In other words, I was trying to find out oneness, uh, where can we track where they came from? And my thesis was that you actually can go back to the first century and uh, find the, that uh, Jewish Christian understanding of Jesus Christ. Is, it, is there a linear line where like one person kind of connects to another to brings us to the 21st century? Or, or is it more of there's a, a group that was here and then another group that's been through here through history where it's been continuous but they weren't necessarily connected well the question is uh what can you show historically mm -hmm. and that's a different question than what was right because we can only go, go by sources that we have and and the things that we read uh so there's a whole what's it called historiography huh? how do you do history and so on what we can find are uh groups here and groups there and uh, for me um, when I was looking at the question um, if this is true if a oneness theology is true um, two things you ought to be able to find one is um, you ought to be able to find uh, places in the second century all over the place even though they're not quite oneness or they have an echo of oneness or they have all these pieces uh, that are present uh, that demonstrate uh, that there was a trunk of the tree from which these branches came. And then the second thing that you ought to be able to discover is how the church went wrong. So mm -hmm. in my book, uh, I Am, I track all of these various groups and try to find the footprint back to the first century. The second thing I do is say, all right, well, where did the Trinity come from? And the amazing thing is you don't have to go far to find that. Standard academic sources will tell you the uh, metaphysical jumps that caused uh, the f philosophical world to enter into the church and to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Uh, in my book, I follow uh, Wolfson, a Harvard scholar, who says there's basically five metaphysical jumps that got us to the Trinity. Now, in terms of finding oneness presence, you find Tertullian, who actually coins the word Trinity, who will say that the majority of people at the beginning of the third century all believe the same way as this guy he's writing against. So the oneness are still the majority then. But after that, our sources kind of drop off. Most of what we know are from what's called heresiology lists, where they're against this or that heresy. Mm -hmm. And they're still mentioning oneness folks for another thousand years, but we can't track you know, who they were, or what they were or doing, and so on and so forth. So I think historically it would be pretty hard to find a, 
uh, unbroken line that you can track simply because of the way history works. Can I, just in case any listeners out there is like, okay, he's throwing out the, these words in here. Just these to, big words. Just to, just to crystallize in their mind. So when we say oneness, what do we mean when we say Trinity? What do we mean? And, and in what way are they different? And I guess the bigger question is, why is it important we believe one or the other? Right. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me get back down to the ground then instead of uh, uh, ranting and raving about my stuff. Um, when you ask, when someone asks me, uh, why did Jesus pray or why was Jesus baptized or, or a hundred different questions, I always start with the same answer. Uh, instead of saying what I don't believe, I say what I do believe. I believe that the God of the Old Testament, who is Yahweh, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. I think that's square one. Uh, and oneness folk, um, we believe as well, First Timothy, well, I'll start with Matthew 121. Uh, the angel comes to uh, Joseph because he thinks his wife's been unfaithful. And he said, no, no, that's not the case. The spirit overshadowed her. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And there's what's called a theophoric element. That is the name of God is attached there. He said, call his name Jesus. That's the same name as Joshua, Yeshua. And it literally means Yahweh has become our salvation. So the very name Jesus is, there are other people who are named uh, Yeshua. I mean, think of the name Jesus in mm -hmm. Hispanic countries or the name Joshua in English-speaking countries, a lot of people. Aren't there verses in the New Testament where you kind of have to be careful because like the King James translates it Jesus, but it's really referencing Joshua from the book of Joshua? There's just a few of those. You got that, uh, you got that in Hebrews and uh, uh, you've got a couple, but, but that's that's the exception rather than, yeah. than the but rule. But either way, it underscores that it yeah, was the same name. We talked about that in the ministry development class, where a lot of a lot of confusion comes from lost in translation. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And um, a lot of people that struggle with what you're talking about is um, people like that. It's come from a long line of um, misconception of language. So I, I'm, I'm sure that's where a lot of confusion for Trinitarianism comes from. Sure. Yeah, it was not a first century concept. But right, anyway. right, right. I w when I was in seminary, you know, you go to seminary and you wonder, well, what will I believe at the end of the, the day? And what I found was um, uh, I was sitting in a class and uh, the professor was, we were exegeting uh, um, First John, and we came to the verse where it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ righteous. The word uh, ad advocate there is parakletos in the Greek, and uh, one student got a little says, Dr. Koch, Dr. Koch, he says to the teacher, he says, yeah, that's the word for the Holy Spirit in, 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 the, in the creeds. He says, yes. He says, it, but it says it's Jesus. Yes. He says, but it's parakletos. Yes. He says, well, can you explain that? And he simply says, he just laughs. He says, well, you're, you're 200 years before the Trinity. So uh, even in that seminary setting, they acknowledged that it was a, a historical development. The only question was whether it was a good one. And, mm -hmm. of course, I, I think not. Speaking of John's writings, and, and you were talking about the five uh, times that the doctrine of the Trinity was kind of introduced, what is the misconception? Uh, was it uh, Justin Martyr? Was was he the one, the writer that um, was the first that was kind of accredited with making the Logos of John one uh, a second person? Y yes, you know it was amazing that 
um, there's a guy by the name of Richard Baucom. He's probably the leading, arguably the leading theologian in the world. And he, in his study, um, came to the understanding that uh, Jesus was divine from the first century. Because before that, they had a model where he only slowly became divine up, up until Nicaea. And then the question was asked, well, well, what happened in the second century? And what you're saying is exactly what happened. You had converts who were schooled in Platonic thought. So their notion of God was that God cannot move. God cannot become part of the cosmos. So what does Justin Martyr do? He says, well, I got an idea, and he borrows it from a guy by the name of Philo. He says, I think that God sent another. He uses the word deuterosteus. He sent another God, and uh, that is the Lagos. And so what we call Logos Christology uh, was started by these early apologists uh, who come from this uh, philosophical bent. And so, yes, pr most prominent, uh, I think 150 AD would be uh, Justin Martyr. Mm -hmm. So, but with that though, so whenever he's translating it, when, when we look at John 1, um, how can we come to an understanding of what the Logos was of John 1? Of course, um, Justin wasn't starting from John 1. Okay. He was starting from a philosophical necessity mm -hmm. of God sending another. So, um, John 1 uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In my book, I detail how the first century spoke of the very essence of God. Um, got a whole couple of chapters on that. Some words are glory, some words are name, um, uh, some words are, are, are very, very specific into talking about the very essence of God. One word is the word dwelling. So uh, when it says, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word for dwelt really means tabernacle. The argument of John's prologue, the first 18 verses, and the argument of John in general, is that the place in which God dwells is not the temple, but the place in which God permanently dwells is in Jesus Christ. Now in John 1, 1, when it says in the beginning was the word, that's really hailing back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember that these are Jewish people who said the Shema every morning, every night, John and Jesus and his disciples. Jesus said that's the first commandment. So John wasn't thinking of another. He was thinking of God and his creative expression. Uh, in case anyone's wondering, the Shema was Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, that, and so w with all of this uh, that we have, now why is it important uh, for us today to believe as they believed in the first century yes, rather absolutely. than with the, the philosophies that have been born out of uh, councils such as Nicaea um, and, and other councils that have been established by the universal church of that day? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm very interested to hear your answer. Of course, Jesus is the one who started the church. Right. It's built on Jesus. And he commissioned his apostles to uh, begin the church after he left, empowered them with the Spirit. That's the purpose of the whole Gospels, and Jesus' ministry was to baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And so what they wrote, what they taught, what they uh, said was significant ought to be for us mm-hmm. what is significant and what should be practiced. No matter what the church later came to believe, some people say, you can't really trust the apostles. That's a primitive Christology. You know what? There's a presupposition in that. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a triumphalistic reading of church history that the church ultimately got it right some four or 500 years later. But if you can't trust the people who were with Jesus and walked with him and talked with him, who wrote the New Testament, who God commissioned to start the church, then something's a little suspicious about that. Yeah. And there's another thing. If you would magically drop the apostles in a time machine some uh, several hundred years later into one of these church councils and hear the debate, they wouldn't have the slightest idea of what they yeah. were even talking about. And who knows more, somebody who lives hundreds of years later or somebody who's present with Jesus, whom in fact he commissioned to start the church. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, in a way, that almost harkens back to what we are saying before about people going through struggles, is anybody in the world can have an opinion about something. Right. But the higher level of human understanding is when you actually have an experience. That's right. I mean, when you have, when you have t- Thomas... Who, who touched the, the hole in his side and experienced that and said, my Lord and my God. Or Philip, uh, when he asked Jesus in John 14, if you just show me the Father, it would be sufficient for me. And when Jesus turns to him and he says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you do not yeah, know, know me? me. Yep. Because if you have seen me, Philip, you have seen my Father also. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about an individual who doesn't have an opinion, who had an experience with Jesus Christ. And I think that directly relates with where we are today because there are people out there that will teach, well, the Holy Spirit isn't for today. It was for the apostles of the first century, a primitive form of Christianity, that the Holy Spirit was only uniquely poured out in Acts 2 for the apostles for the establishment of the church with the exception of Acts 10 for a, a way of a supernatural sign that the Gentiles were brought in. But it's not an experience you can have today. That statement is born out of opinion. That's right. But when we sit in this room as three individuals that have had that same yes. experience, yes. as Acts 10 says, the same gift right. like they received on, in Acts chapter number 2, when you've been there and you've actually experienced it. And I think, you know, there's a saying out there that says, a man with an opinion, or a, with a, an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an opinion. Mm-hmm. In a way, I agree and I disagree with that. I like to say a person who has an experience that's built upon the Word of God is never at the mercy of an individual that just has an opinion about what the Bible says. Absolutely. Dr. Norris, we have been talking about how uh, people who know more, uh, those who walked with Jesus or those who, like us, study of, is there something in, um, in your whole uh, walk with God, that you see generations uh, taking that post and putting it just a little further back that if we're not careful, it's going to be a part of our past and not a part of our future. Because as a 21st century church, yes, there's things that we have to do to keep up with the times. I mean, we would be ignorant if we didn't think that. Um, we wouldn't be sitting in a new college if we thought that. Yeah. Um, there wouldn't be growth. Um, but is there something that is valuable um, that just doesn't need to be changed, theology-wise, that we just can't let go of for our next generation coming on. Because one last thing before you answer that, because 
going back to the conversation we had at breakfast this morning, is one of the biggest misconceptions that we have as each generation is that the next generation already knows that. Mm. We don't have to keep teaching and preaching that. They already know that. Mm. So is there something that you can think of or that you already know of or something that you're striving to make sure that the next generation does not lose? When uh, I moved to St. Louis in 2001, to be part of the founding faculty of Urshan Graduate School of Theology, I wanted uh, to teach people when they just walked in the door. That was because I wanted them to have the right understanding of the Bible. And I wanted them to have a high understanding of Jesus Christ and of the significance of uh, the gift that we've been given in terms of um, uh, being able to, as you say, experience God's presence and so um, I'm kind of a stickler in teaching the same things over and again. In 2010, I wrote a book called Big Ideas for Freshmen. And I begged, for years I begged to teach freshmen at the college. And they said, well, there's no point in you teaching freshmen. Anyone could teach freshmen. But I wanted them when they first come in the door. I wanted to create, uh, uh, this is probably a bad word, but a Pentecostal catechism. <laughs> what, what do you really need to know? I mean, like, if, you, if there are 50 scriptures w- w- that you really are core, what are they? And so I wanted them to memorize. I've got a list of 62 verses they memorize. Um, I, I have cardinal things. Now, this is where you start, and this is what you say. I have paragraphs that they memorize. Then we also give them concepts and principles and so on. But after Brother Bernard comes and teaches the course with me, uh, Brother Colthar, Brother Gleason, we want the important voices to um, be in their life like, you know what, it's really important who you are and you gotta know what, you gotta know why it's in the Bible and you gotta apply it to yourself. So um, I have given my life for simple things like don't, you're only one generation from extinction. Don't, don't, don't let go of things that are significant. I'm amazed at what God is doing in the church um, recently, we had this youth congress where we had what I don't know thirty, yeah, some, thousand, some, yeah. some thousand there, and they're passionate. And I, and I look at the students here, and we had uh, meetings with other Bible colleges, and it's not just here; it's other places. Um, we'll go to service, and um, they're praying before service. They're coming here for prayer every morning, early morning before breakfast. and uh, service, I went to chapel on Thursday, and uh, what happened there was what usually happens. They're dismissed, and there's, I mean, it's lunchtime. That lunch is calling, and then a bunch of them are just like, they're not leaving. They're just there. So it's not just that they rush to the front and praise the Lord on the songs, but the music stopped, and they're still there. So there's something deep and passionate about what God's doing I am greatly um, encouraged by what God's doing in the church today. When we look at, um, as you said, we, we could be no more than one generation, one generation away from, from losing the grasp on truth that we have. Uh, when we look back at the early church, we see these signposts. Do, do you ever give thought to what are the signposts that say that we're moving in the wrong direction? 
like what would be some of the things that if it became a, a mainstream concept or belief that you were like that's 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 one of the points that leads to a decline because it's happened in the church before it could happen again how do we watch for the signs of the times in a sense of to make sure that we're not going down the wrong road when we see that mile marker that's when we know we've gone too far they say that when you train people about um, how to um, discover counterfeit $100 bills. The way they train them is not to study counterfeit $100 bills, but to study the real thing. Um, and so when you study the real thing, the counterfeit becomes really evident pretty quick. Um, I'm on, I don't know how many committees, uh, I get people writing me questions, I wind up dealing with uh, doctrinal things, and you can't, you know, you think, well, I'll squash this thing here, and then we'll be, and then something else, you know, so the, 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 the heresies are innumerable. <laughs> 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 but, but the way that we can really, uh, the signposts are studying the real $100 bills. I, I don't know, I, I'm not pushing off the, the mm -hmm. uh, and maybe, maybe I'm missing the question. I'm, I'm trying not to miss the question, but. No, I think uh, that's a great answer. It's just that regardless of whatever it is, we just have to make sure that we, we have enough of an association with yes, what is absolutely. real. That way we will, if you have that connection, you'll be able to spot it. Even though it may not be a, a clear marker of, well, once they make uh, the, the, the sun a second person, that's the first mile marker. I think that, that whenever we have just that concept of what truth is, that we will know, because it's all going to be individual based. I don't, I don't necessarily think that, that um, doctrinal decline is something that's going to be mainstream a whole organization all of a sudden just kind of tanks i think that it starts on the individual level dr norris when you got here today uh, we set up in a classroom that's across from your office and brian wanted to go over and see your office so i thought i'd follow along and on your window to your office you have times and brian asked you what those times were for and you said well it's for my freshmen and uh First of all, thank you for pouring into our young people. That, Absolutely. That, I mean, that's, that's something that's impeccable. But on the floor, you have a whole bunch of binders. Mm. And I can't shake this, this feeling and this thought. Brian asked you what the binders were about. And you said it's about the importance. There's, you don't allow laptops, and you have them you take. I'll let you talk about it, about, the cell, phone. about yeah, the cell phone. Absolutely. But I want you to talk about why you have those binders out there. Because what... What we're doing as a podcast, we we had an elderly gentleman come to us and say, I don't even know what a podcast is. <laughs> and I told him, I said, it's a radio show, but for the Internet. He was like, I didn't even know radio was on the Internet. <laughs> and, you know, what you're teaching freshmen is what you call a lost art. And it kind of motivates me to want to, to do what you're, you're talking about. And I want you to tell, tell our listeners what, you, what you're doing with our freshmen when they get sent to Urshan? Well, um, teaching has changed. The, they say that you have, as a college professor, 10 minutes of attention span, and then you have to have an emotional hook. Um, and then you, they're not listening to you, they're listening to each other. So if you create groups where you're, first you teach it, and then you affirm it, and then they, here's some scenario, they're helping someone, and then they teach it in groups. 
they memorize it, they write it down. Uh, we're using every possible teaching method possible. They've discovered that students do not take notes, They're, that's a lost art. Uh, and if they have their laptop, they will go online. Uh, it's the sort of cultural right, if you're boring me, I, so I, I, it's my own protection. <laughs> and then um, there is a, a, a cross, I've talked to scholars and educators across the country, it's a literal addiction, uh, texting on the phone. So they have withdrawals if they're in an hour and a half class. And so I, I bring Jesus on my side. I said, now, and this is what I say. I say, look, um, God's going to judge me for how I use his time. And so I know you don't want him to judge me. So I really need to really, uh, okay, so some of the things you're going to need your Bible for, and they don't have a Bible. They've got a phone, okay? Uh, and so I know you've got your phone here, and I, I just need you to make a covenant between God and me that you'll only use that for what we were working on in class. Yeah. And they do it, and they, they're okay with it. And sometimes they'll forget and they'll text, and I, I mean, I'm not like, going to hit them with a rock or something. I'll just, I'll just teach <laughs> and walk. What are you with, though? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a rock, but what is it? <laughs> I'll just teach and walk over where they're, they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. So it's not like, you know, it's... I love these students. They know I love them and care for them. So the notebooks, are, my TAs are going through it and make sure they have notes for every day. And, and I, the, my other sneak thing is they're going to teach this. They don't know they're going to teach this, but they're going to teach this. Yeah. And I give, they've got every note now. And because I graded it, it's important. But it'll be important later for another reason. Let me tell you why that uh, affected me so much is because really, in all honesty, my wife and I um, – we're old souls at heart. And I have this box at my house that if I were to give it to you or if I were to give it to Brian, you would open it up and be like, okay, nothing of value in here and hand it back to me. But to me, it means the world to me. It has um, my great, great, great grandmother's first rolling pin in it. Uh, it's got um, my how would that be? My great grandfather's straight razor he bought while he was in World War One, and he brought it home, gave it to my grandpa, then my dad. My dad gave it to me. You know, it's stuff that's of value. And one of the most valuable pieces I have in that is the grandmother I was telling you about, my great grandmother I was telling you about that was beaten for going to church. I have her tear-stained Bible. It's mm, wonderful. And in that Bible there's notes that she was writing in church knowing that 30 45 minutes from now I'm writing I put my trust and faith in God and you see a tear stain and she knows she's got her faith in God but knowing that she's going home to that so I want to encourage everybody for the next generation that's coming behind you it may not be nothing to you now Brian what you're writing in your note journal over here but have something that you can share with somebody. Those notes are are valuable. They're, I mean, there's nothing more. Man, that's a scary thought. That I've never, I mean, I've thought on it, but I, I guess it just kind of hit me, is that when you upload memories, pictures, to an electronic cloud, you know, what, what happens when the device goes down or you forget the password or whatever, yeah. and that next generation, or they don't have, uh, you know, those sentimental things of like a handwritten note of somebody you know, our next generation won't have any concept of what that is right. or generations after us if we don't do uh, kind of what Brother Norris is, is having them do in his classes is, is actually have to write their notes rather than just 
archive everything on a on a device. Dr. Norris, we do a couple of things here um, towards the ends of our podcast, and thank you so much for spending time with us on a Saturday where you don't have to be at the college. You came up to the college. Um, but a couple of things we do is we like to get a book recommendation, and you can be dirty about that. You can say, I'm going to recommend I Am and Big Ideas, go buy it. Uh, or you can just tell you something that you know, you're reading that's really impacted you. I see that you've got your Bible opened up to Daniel. Um, also, we like to give you the floor for a final thought or a final word or something God's been dealing with you on. Um, but before we do get there, is there something significant that you have your Bible open to Daniel for? <laughs> I have a large print Bible, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting across the table. And I can I'm, tell you what you're on. <laughs> I, I'm, I memorize um, scripture. It's a um, it's a life habit. Uh, you know, if you meditate on God's word, uh, and so now um, I, some people use cards or other devices. I I do it out of the page. I open the Bible uh, randomly, so there was no. Um, no intention. No intention of Daniel, but uh, Daniel's as good as any other book. It's all sure. it's all good. So I, I don't have anything sure. specific well, there. Well, speaking of the book of Daniel, um, your most recent book is about end time prophecy, and obviously the book of Daniel is one of the most uh, read book when it comes to uh, the thoughts of the end times. Can you uh, talk with us for a moment about about your most recent book? Absolutely. Uh, it's called Life, Death, and the End of the World. And uh, it sounds negative because, you know, like, end of the world. But it really, it's... it's well, the first part is really positive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Life. Yeah, let's talk about that yeah, yeah, part. Yeah. So the end of the world is really the end of the age. But the good news is that one age ends and a new age begins. And that's where Revelation ends, where God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be any more pain. Where the former things have passed away. So that's that's what we have hope to. We uh, read the end of the book and we're a part of that group. Uh, that's available on Pentecostal um, Publishing House. And also I have a new venture I'm starting, uh, as long as you're allowing me to uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. make my own commercials yes. here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, NorrisPublishinghouse.com. Uh, N-O-R-R-I-S, publishinghouse.com. Right now I'm selling a lot of used books. I've got thousands of used books I'm selling, and I'm going to be having Pentecostal authors uh, that will um, be, be there as well. So uh, my most recent book is called Ethel, uh, a Pioneer Preacher. That's also PPH or NorrisPublishinghouse.com. Um, and I don't know. I can't remember what else I was supposed to say. So we'll put that in the link uh, yes, to your website there. Um, Can I ask a couple of questions yeah, real quick? Go ahead, go ahead. Um, just to you know, continue to advertise for the book, uh, we talked a lot about the first century when, and when it comes to the concept of, of the oneness of God. What was the posture of the early church in terms of how they saw the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, when you read uh, not only the Bible— uh, but also the early church fathers. You know, in Paul's epistles, one of every 10 verses is about the coming of the Lord. It's not a minor doctrine. It's a major doctrine. Uh, and when you read up through the first several centuries, they all had the same view, the positive view of the return of Christ. They did believe in a, what we would call a tribulation period. They did believe in what we call an antichrist, but they weren't viewing it negatively. They were view, viewing the fact that God was going to make a change in the age. 
Uh, it wasn't until these same dudes that I talked about before, the whole Hellenistic stuff came in, that that as well took a beating in terms of what was going to be believed. They allegorized it away. They made it so it wasn't there. So I do a history piece in there. I also do um, a pretty thorough grounding in terms of uh, a standard Pentecostal eschatology. It took me seven years to write that. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to write something simple, but then one thing leads to another. I've got, um, I don't know, over a thousand footnotes and hundreds of uh, books, but it's an easy read. I do I tell a lot of stories. It's, it's, it's accessible. So it's a book that uh, UPCI ministers uh, read for licensure. There is a, 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 a line that's in the book when you talk about the crushing of the devil's head mm. and, and how in, in, the, in Genesis uh, chapter number three, it talks about the seed of the woman. It mm. shall crush the head of the serpent. And when you talked about how the crushing is a, a three-phased crushing, how it happened at the cross, it happens during the church, but it is finalized in the return of Jesus Christ. Can you talk about that a little bit as the scope of history, how, you know, obviously the devil fights against the church, but he's already a defeated foe. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, In the Garden of Eden, uh, when the Lord is um, pronouncing curses upon um, the earth, the first thing that he um, pronounces a judgment upon is his serpent. And he says, uh, you know, you're going to uh, crawl on the ground, uh, Genesis 3, 4, 14, Genesis 3, 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. Um, that single prophecy was not fulfilled one time. But like many prophecies, it's a shorthand for God's entire plan of redemption in other words, you, even though Jesus Christ is going to die on the cross, that's not permanent. That's like a wound in the heel. But your head's going to be crushed. And so you have several scriptures, uh, New Testament, that speak of that. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, it says in verse 14, For as much as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, took part of the same that through death he might destroy him who had power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The word destroy is uh, a Greek word there that means gradually destroy. Now on the cross of Calvary in John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished, not as a martyr, but as a conquering general. In uh, the book of Romans, chapter 16, there's a promise to the church that God will crush Satan's head shortly under your feet. So there's a way in which it's done, and theologians say it's the now and the not yet. It's done, and then, of course, people still die, and there's still things, and we're still waiting for the the end of it. But there will come a time uh, when Satan will be absolutely destroyed. We read this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, and then ultimately in Revelation chapter 20 and uh, verse 10. Uh, where it says the devil is cast into the lake of fire. And so there's going to be a time when death will be no more, where te- the tempter will be no more, and God's redemptive story will come to an end in the way that he absolutely planned it. Uh, it, it. You know, we can have this or that struggle. We can have this or that difficulty. But if we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, our eternity and future is secure, and we can trust in the God that has promised this deliverance. Amen. Uh, that, that is so awesome, Dr. Norris. Thank you so much. Um, in, uh, I think you said it was um, one in ten verses are about the end times in Paul. Yes. 
so obviously it, as you said, this is an, an important doctrinal point and something that we should all be, uh, that know about. We don't hear about it just an overt amount anymore like we used to. Uh, obviously, whenever um, the modern-day revival of, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that was one of the central messages of, of early tent revivals was Jesus is coming and you need to be ready. Um, but I think a lot of people, the reason why we don't hear about it so much is people kind of get nervous about it or, or it, it makes them afraid. But Paul says to comfort one another with these words. So I'd like to ask you now, uh, Dr. Norris, to comfort our listeners about the things they're going through and how we do have that blessed hope that someday this age will end and we will enter into an age where there won't be tears and there won't be that suffering. You know, everyone has difficulties in life. Uh, sometimes we enter marriage with the best intention, but then there's brokenness in the family. Sometimes a church situation, which we think should be the safest place in the world, uh, comes to a place where there's some offense or wound or brokenness. Sometimes it's our own failure. We start out walking with the Lord and, and then we trip and fall and so on. The wonderful thing about the Lord is that he will never let us go and that there is nothing, according to Paul in the book of Romans, that can separate us from the love of Christ. And that no matter what you're going through, whatever difficulty, whether that's in the family or in the church, Paul writes to this, the Corinthian church and he says, our light affliction which is but for a moment, compared to eternity, it's just for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You have a hope. You have someone who loves you no matter what you're going through, and he will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able. He's there, and he's here for you even today. Let me say a prayer, a blessing on your life. Lord God, I call down a blessing on this one right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, you understand the circumstance. It's not an accident that they're listening to this podcast. You're calling them to remembrance of how you saved them and how you are walking with them yet even today. I rebuke the devourer in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray for provision. I pray for healing. I pray for wholeness. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. What That's an answer. powerful. <laughs> what an uh, answer. So as Tony said, we're, we're, we're going to be closing here. But just like when the preacher says, just give me five more minutes, that really doesn't mean anything when we say we're closing. <laughs> uh, we want to we find out about some books that you think are, that are formative to you. In your office, you talked about how you tend to ask people, what are the five books that, um, that define the, the way that they're understanding or, or have really spoken to them? Uh, we'd like to ask you, you don't have to give us five, but if you just want to give us a few that our listeners, you know, you would recommend to people. But before we get there, I, I want to, I wanna, if we can get personal again with you and talk about your son, uh, w would you talk about the times that, that you've had with your son? Sure. You know, uh, my wife was raised in the church. Uh, I was raised in a church. Her dad was a church planter. And, you know, life ought to be good. We're following the calling. We're marrying in the church, and we love each other. And... Um, 
But we only ever had one son, uh, Nathaniel. And uh, so uh, we didn't know until the day he was due, the doctor said, oh, there's something wrong with the baby. I don't know. His head's too small. There's not enough amniotic fluid. Still trying to figure out what that was. And uh, ultimately, he had a rare genetic disorder called Cretaceous Cretaceous syndrome. It's kind of like uh, Downs in that it can be very severe or very mild. His was very severe. They said he wouldn't live to be two years, maybe three years, at least statistically that's what they were saying because he was at that lowest spectrum and that he would be sick the entire time. And I, I, I'm sad to say that I didn't know how to pray. I, I'm ashamed of that now because I thought, well, would, would it be better for him not even to be alive and uh, I went home and the Lord prompted me to pray that was for someone in the church and he said praise me and I thought if he had to command me to praise him it had to be something bad it had to be the worst diagnosis and I said no I'm not going to praise you praise me praise praise me and finally I just Release it to the Lord, and uh, um, and there was a, there was a genuine release. Uh, I mean, I had questions the rest of his life about this or that thing, but never of. I mean, he was my son, and uh, even through all his multiple hospitalizations, uh, didn't matter. He was my son. He would come home from school, and he, they did therapy on him. That was school, and the nurse would give him a bath, and we, I would uh, rock him in the rock. And that's part of his routine. And he would listen to a cassette tape of Merrill Street, and he'd be on my lap and getting ready. He'd, he'd be all he'd, he'd splash and uh, had new jams on, and he was smelling fresh, and he'd hear that music come on for the tape. And it would be the background, and then Meryl Streep would say, once there was a Valentine rabbit. <laughs> and in the beginning, he was quite bushy. And when he would hear that, he would knew it was time to relax, and, and I'd be in the rocking chair, he'd just snuggle. And at that moment, it didn't matter that he uh, wouldn't be a football player or a Bible quizzer or a preacher or any of that. It's enough that he's my son. I loved him because he was my son. You know, sometimes uh, we forget uh, when we come to the Lord, we remember that we didn't deserve it and it's only God's grace and mercy. But then sometimes once we start living for the Lord, we think it's because of what we do. Isn't that funny? Like we have to work our way. But he loves you because you're his son. You don't have to do anything. My, my boy didn't have to do anything to make me love him. And so we don't, we don't have to do anything to uh, make, make the Lord love us. Uh, he was critically ill. That, I didn't know that was a category. Five hospitalizations a year, that's critically ill. He lived to be 13, though. He lived, lived a long time. And uh, I treasure those times. It's funny, you know, I, I ask God, why did you give him to me? And then I ask, why did you take him? We're humans, we're funny that way. But he, that, uh, he taught me more.
about what's really important in life than any other experience. Uh, when everything's life and death and you're living on that, you know, it's, the rest is details. It puts everything in perspective. Yeah. Brian, I don't want to end this podcast now, <laughs> but uh, Dr. Norris, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Um, give us those, those books that impacted you that you think that... I'll give you two. Give us two. I'll just give you two. One was a book that um, my dad had disinherited me, and uh, I went to the funeral, and it was, you can imagine, terrible. And I came home, and on my nightstand, my wife had laid a book. She does that. She wants me to read a book. She knows I read everything. It's called The Blessing by Gary Smalling, John Trent and Gary Smalling. And it's a biblical thing of how to bless others. Uh, it, it was so life-changing. There's a chapter in there, what do you do if you don't get the blessing? And uh, So part of it was my story, but it's, part of it's every story. I tried to change my teaching after that, to bless every student. I tried to change my, it changed my ministry, how to, how to give a blessing, even if you haven't got it. So that, I would recommend that one. And then the other one is not a religious book, and it's been out for a while. It's a business book. It's uh, Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And this is what I, the reason why I recommend this book. Um, people are sitting on their hands waiting for the calling of God to come to pass, and the book tells you to be volitional. Just do the next thing. Mm. Plan your life. Be intentional. Be intentional. Yeah. And uh, I think that is particularly for this generation. It, nothing's going to happen by accident. Do the next thing. You've connected with so many people on so many different levels through um, your years of teaching and preaching and camp meetings. And writing. And writings. I would like for you, um, as a final, uh, to just give us what's on your heart right now. What has God been dealing with you? And if you could speak to somebody right now, what would it be? You know, um, I'm 65, and uh, when I was a teenager, I gave everything to God in my banking account. I think it was $17. That's easy to do in a yeah, $17. Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And But then you, you're 30, and God asks the same thing, and you're 40, and you're 50, and I'm 65. And at any point in your life, you can choose to not trust God because, you know, the, the, you know what will kindergarten be like? What will college be like? What will marriage be like? What will it, and then you get to the end of life stuff, and you go like, will I have enough money? Will my health fail me? Will my wife, and all those questions uh, and they seem to be new questions every time, every, at every place in your life when you're 30, 40, 50, 60. They seem to be new questions because they are. They're new questions for you. Uh, but I'm very thankful for the, and I, I, my challenge is to say, how can I be faithful in this season of life where I am? I'm very thankful for people that have gone before, even those who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. And uh, that I can say, well, if they can be faithful. Lord, I'm going to be faithful to him. Absolutely. Brian, this has been a podcast. This, this has been a podcast. Um, 
I just want to encourage somebody out there in the closing of our podcast that what I've learned through this whole podcast, Brian, Dr. Norris, is live life on purpose. Live life on purpose. God's called you for a reason. He's called you for a purpose. You never know who it's going to be, whether it be a freshman in 2019 or whether it be um, someone on their deathbed. Know that God has called you for a purpose. Live on purpose. You may feel like your life isn't perfect, and the reason you feel that way is because it's not. Because nobody's life is perfect. Everyone goes through things, and don't, but don't look at your imperfections as a way of seeing that they are a, a hindrance from the love of God on your life. That you don't have to be, quote unquote, perfect for God. God loves you anyway. That's right. And the greatest part of his love is, is that he loves you so much that he won't just leave you where you're at, but he can lead you into his perfection. This has been The Crucial Conversation.